0: the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. I am really excited about today's show. On this episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air, I am joined by Monet Roberts. She is the Assistant Director for the LGBTQIA Resource Center at UC Davis, of course, home of one of our member institutions, UC Davis College of Veterinary Medicine. And Monet and I are going to chat about intersectionality today as a concept and kind of maybe what that might mean for our students and professionals in the
1: veterinary profession. So welcome to the show, Monet. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. As you said, I currently serve as the assistant director at the LGBTQIA Center over at UC Davis. Uh, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, though, so I'm a transplant. Been in California about two years. I love it out here, never leaving. Uh, but I was born and raised in Brooklyn, lived there pretty much my entire life. So I'm very much an East Coast person, but Callie is like has my heart now. I'm also the mother of two kids. I got two kids, uh, 6 and 11. And they're kind of like started to recently shape uh, my lens as a social justice educator in general. So, yeah, so it's another little aspect of myself that I kind of like bring to my work. And essentially, I just work with various people in, in the institution on issues of social justice and just trying to educate folks and get everybody on the same page.
0: Great. Well, thank you. Welcome. And yes, I to understand how parenting changes yes. social justice work. Yes. <laughs> yes. We could do a whole show just on that.
1: So. Yes, exactly.
0: So Monet, tell us what is intersectionality?
1: Sure. So essentially, well let's let's start with okay, so the term was co- coined by Kimberly Crenshaw and she is a law professor. This is back in 1989 and she did it because there didn't seem to be enough literature or there wasn't a way to explain the way Black women specifically experience racism and sexism. And so it essentially describes the way that multiple systems of oppression interact in the lives of folks with multiple marginalized identities. Uh, So it looks at the relationships between the Marginalized identities and how and, and discusses how social prop and sorry discusses how the systems that we have to navigate on a regular basis how those systems impact us and so and it helps us in in order to be able to make more effective in, interventions so to speak so that is kind of like a gist of what intersectionality is so- I would say. No, go ahead. yes sir. no go ahead. I would say that it's also important to note that Kimberly Crenshaw, although she coined the term, it actually has a, a little bit more of a history back with Anna Julia Cooper who first started talking about intersectionality and she brought it up because she was talking about the difficulty with being not only black but also a woman and how black women have to fight the fight on both ends you know being racism and sexism at the same time. So that's kind of like how we got it start. And then you had some other folks, Combahee River Collective also talked about intersectionality, talking about interlocking oppression um, back in the 1970s. So it's been around for a while, but the actual term didn't actually come like out in the mainstream until Kimberly Crenshaw coined it. Okay.
0: Oh, yeah. And I mean, I mean I'm thinking even someone like uh, Polly Murray and and the work that, probably did thinking about issues around race, but also gender and gender identity more broadly and, and being involved in now and, and women's equity and all of those kinds of things. I mean, but there wasn't a language for right. it. Right. So so what I'm hearing though is that it's less about, well, it's not less about, but it's it's not necessarily about the multiple identities, but really focusing on the the social effect of experiencing those multiple identities in an oppressive system.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it's definitely started to shift as of recently. People started to use it in different ways, and we could talk about more of that later. But yeah, it really is about how a person doesn't just exist as a Black person or a person that is a woman, but a black woman to today in this society and what does what do the systems do specifically to black women or Latinx women mm-hmm. or Latinx folks with disabilities? Mm-hmm. So how how do how does the system essentially impact them differently than than others?
0: So how does this add to I guess the discourse around diversity and inclusion?
1: Yeah. So I feel like diversity and inclusion are very important things. However, diversity kind of really talks about representation. You know, like making sure that folks are there in in the room, making sure we have everybody included. Everyone's here, they're present. You know, you got somebody who's who's black, you got somebody who's white, Latinx, Asian. That's kind of like diversity, representation. Um, looking at it on a on a single identity, right? So we're just focused on that one identity. And inclusion. It's more about making sure that people have access, they have equal say, and that we're considering all perspectives. Um, But once again, it's coming from the, the lens of this specific identity that we're focusing on. But intersectionality as the piece that we're not just thinking about one's race and we're not just thinking about their gender, right? We're thinking about how their race and their gender impact them and how the system impacts their race and their gender. And that to me is like a little bit more comprehensive, essentially when it comes to issues of social justice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, for example, I mean, well, the example you kind of gave briefly earlier about, maybe someone who's Latinx who also has a disability. So so there's maybe stereotypes around maybe being wheelchair bound, right? Or having mo- some type of mobility issue that yeah. potentially, in addition to stereotypes about being Latinx. And so then you've got those two things, those two identities, and any other things that might just be kind of compounded, kind of compounding the experience that that individual is having. Absolutely, for sure. So then, how do we how do we talk about this? <laughs> We're doing that now, right? But right. how do we talk about that in terms of discrimination? Where you know we. We talk a lot. I mean, certainly now there's all of this kind of discourse, pleasant and unpleasant, about um, identity politics and about marginalization and about social justice and about all of these kinds of things. How then do we really kind of introduce this concept and get folks to not just pick one?
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, I think I think it first has to start with oneself, right? It's easier for people to understand, I think, sometimes when you ask them to think about their own experiences and their own identities. And if you were to ask a person, okay, we're going to give you five identities. You want to list five identities. You can only choose two to be today. Like the other three, you, you can't talk about those. We don't care about that. Or even break it down to just one. You know what I mean? And getting folks to realize that their identities individually they're, that's one thing, but when they intersect, it makes up who they are as a person. So, if you want to talk about these issues, you have to talk about the whole person and you have to talk about how the system impacts the whole person. So, I think it kind of starts with personalizing it and getting people to see that you can't just talk about one aspect of, of yourself because you're going to leave a lot of parts out and then, therefore, it's not going to be as comprehensive. So I think that's a big
0: piece of it. Yeah. So I think that like for, you know, an example might be trying to help listeners kind of wrap their heads around this. So, so we had the, like the Latinx wheelchair person, but one of the things that we, you know, we always hear a lot of pushback and even in some of my research, I see it where folks say, oh, queer folks, we really just don't want to hear about your sex lives as though, you know, we all sit around and talk about sex lives, but but there's a lack of appreciation that, okay, so there's, you might be a person of color, you might be from rural America, you might be from, <laughs> you know, first generation, right. um, college of Cindy, and then you might also be queer. And someone's like, yeah, but I can't deal really with the queer part. But then they ask you how you're, so what did you do this weekend? And that seems like a very innocuous question, mm-hmm. right? But if you were with your partner... <laughs> Hanging yeah. out or your spouse of the same gender or, you know, hey, your weekend was also, you know, marred by the fact that you had to find a bathroom because nobody wanted you to go to a bathroom. Like those are just that's just people just la, la, la living their lives. Right. I went hiking with my partner.
1: Yeah, <laughs> So I guess you don't want to hear that I went hiking with my partner. Right, exactly. Or you want to keep it so bland that I just say hiking with my partner and I'm not going to go into who my partner is and the fact that I'm dating someone of the same gender. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And so like, I just kind of want people to understand that that's how the, the day-to-day piece of it is. And it's like, oh, so then, you know, then it might end up going, oh, I didn't know like brown people hiked.
1: Okay. So right. talking, <laughs> right. like, never, we're yeah. just going to skip over the partner part. <laughs> yeah. So it really is, like you said, it's a matter of folks having to navigate which piece of myself do I share today? Right. Is it okay to bring my whole self? And I feel like folks with multiple marginalized identities, that's something that they have to navigate on a regular basis. You know, one of the things... When I was looking to move out here and looking at institutions to work for, I was thinking, you know, are they going to accept all of me, right? So me, not not even just being queer, presenting more masculine, that also is a part of my identity. Are they going to accept? I wore a tie to my interview. Like, is this something that's going to be accepted? And it's something that you have to think about on a regular basis. And what's the impact of that? right if i don't share all of myself how is it impacting me internally how's it impacting the people that i love and the people i surround myself with because i feel stifled in a sense so yeah absolutely right
0: so is intersectionality only
1: for marginalized folks i would say that <laughs> when it began it it began specifically talking about how marginalized folks are impacted right so that's that's where it came from but it's not something that only impacts marginalized people we all experience intersectionality on, on a day-to-day basis because we're whole individuals right we think it and we we think of ourselves holistically i would hope right we don't think of ourselves just as one aspect of ourselves so it really is for every everyone essentially and it, and it infiltrates all aspects of our life thinking about everyone folks that are watching this of uh, in that med If you think about when you're diagnosing a patient, right, you're not going to look at just one little aspect of whatever that patient is. Okay, I'm going to ask this one question and that's it. You're going to ask multiple questions about different parts of the patient to really get to understand the full picture. That is essentially intersectionality at work, right? If we just ask one question and kind of like have this tunnel vision, then we we miss out on the entire part and then we're not going to effectively diagnose someone. And then treat them. That's a great example.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that we yeah. I mean, that that's 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 medicine, right? That's health yeah. professions and that's so many other disciplines as well. You can't just kind of um, nothing is in isolation. Absolutely. Right. right. So you and I've chatted over the months a little bit about kind of vet med and you had your kind mm-hmm. of <laughs> facilitation by fire with vet med earlier yeah. this year. So just a little bit about some of our incoming applicants, right? So about 30% of our applicants are from low income backgrounds and 30% are about you know, first generation applicants. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, first generation college attendees, and then about twenty percent are racial and ethnic minorities. Then we've got like mm-hmm. another twenty percent. Well, and there's all of these folks are all mixed up, right? <laughs> so, right, right. like twenty percent of our applicant pool are from rural backgrounds mm. as well. And there's a lot of overlap across these populations. These statistics, of course, like the statistic only looks at one identity. Right. right. Really, <laughs> We've got folks that, you know, are swimming in all of these. So how mm-hmm. might this really kind of, how, how might we think about this, we help the vet schools think about this as they're looking at future applicants, knowing that they've got, you know, they're, they're bringing all of this stuff <laughs> with them.
1: Absolutely. You know, easy. <laughs> yeah, so easy. So easy. I mean... I think it goes back to trying to consider one of the things I've noticed that I feel like a lot of institutions just in general with application processes are getting away from this one thing that makes or breaks you, right? So whether it's the GPA or your GRE scores or what, ha- what have you, it used to be like this one thing you needed and if you don't have it, then if that that's it. But kind of looking at application holistically, right? So, doing the same things with the students that, that are coming in. For example, you will p- potentially have folks who are experienced, who may come in feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome for different reasons. So, it may not just be that they're first generation, right? And so, this is the first time they're navigating certain things having to do with higher ed, but it also could be that they, could be low income, and so they're feeling imposter syndrome with not having access to certain things that others have access to. So those are other things to think about. And then just thinking about how the two combined might really impact that student's walk in their journey in vet med, right? And what are some of the resources that the institutions can provide to help them along the way to make sure that they feel like, yes, no, you do belong here, right? Right and what is it whatever it is that you feel that you may need to make you successful we're going to figure that out together because we want you to feel as if you're included because we chose you we want you to he- be here and be successful okay. yeah i
0: mean i think that that one of the things that i've learned along the way is that that particularly when, when we talk about kind of multiple marginalizations kind of simultaneously experienced, people need a lot more validation, right? They do need to, to be reminded that they deserve to be mm-hmm. here, right? Absolutely. So that gets really to that point point that you, that, that you mentioned about kind of, you know, are there additional resources? The other thing is in in dealing just with the wellness thing, which is a really big issue, I think, in higher ed in general, but really specifically within veterinary medicine, we talk a lot about wellness and, and some of the additional risk factors that our folks seem to be. And these folks are, are already kind of bringing in a lot more baggage because yeah. they're questioning whether or not, you know, they've they, they worked really hard and to get there and they're questioning whether or not their their selection is valid.
1: Absolutely.
0: So Absolutely. so they need a little bit more of that validation. Pat everybody on the back.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And pat them on the back, but also recognize that because folks are coming from, they come with a different set of experiences and also consider how your own experiences may show up in the way that you engage with folks. You know what I mean? Are you seeing them as a whole person when you're engaging with them? Or are you looking at one aspect because of your own experiences that you have to work through as well? That's something that we have to consider, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I think that that all admissions programs, not just in veterinary medicine, but that's that's one of the struggles is that, you know, okay, well, I've made it. And so I want to choose people like me that came up on the website and with, You know, a three wheel wagon and a hole in the shoe and the whole thing, and and that narrative is something that many people adopt, but isn't Mm. necessarily their their reality because revisionist history. But 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 understanding that profiles may look different because of these kinds of marginalizations mm-hmm. or lack of experiences and that, you know, those folks are, are bringing a different set of experiences that are still valid and necessary in, in any profession. And so, yeah, one of the things that, you know, some, some of the things that we see in our research here at AAVMCU on applicants, we know that, you know, kind of conventional wisdom has been that applicants who are coming from marginalized backgrounds have fewer kind of experiential hours, which is a a common requirement in applications, right? But what we found is that they actually have equal to, and in some cases, depending on the group, statistically more experiential hours. But here's the catch. They're working and they tend to take a lower course load. And so they're working full-time, taking a lower course load. So when that shows up in the application, they have all of these great hours. That's awesome. But their GPA might be a 10th lower. (laughs) Right. They didn't have time to be in clubs. So they weren't president of 4-H or FFA or whatever other, you know, handy dandy club that we think is really great and important. And so they might actually excel. On paper, it looks like they're excelling in one area to the detriment of the others. Well, yeah, but they had to work in order to be able to take the nine credit hours. Exactly. And so kind of understanding what that really looks like in terms of an applicant profile is is really important because that really is kind of the numerical the numeric representation of kind of an intersectionality, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so gonna, we're gonna, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, and I just think also just looking at different experiences as a positive thing, you know what I mean? Like some, it's kind of like if you think about on a job interview where you don't have certain experiences and qualifications, but you can speak to it based on your other experiences. I think it's about thinking of it that way, um, just basically going back off of what you said. And I think that's how we kind of get to the holistic perspective of who a person is and what they have to offer the program. Yeah.
0: So I'll be doing follow-up shows during the course of the next few months on different kinds of intersectional communities Mm -hmm. in veterinary medicine. So we're looking at doing a show on men of color, women of color, queer folks of color. So this is our chance to kind of just shoot in the dark and pontificate and put words in
1: people's mouths. What do you think that we might hear from
0: some of our colleagues on those shows?
1: I think you're probably going to hear going back to what I said earlier about imposter syndrome. I know that for me, I still deal with that um to this very day, feeling as if maybe am I good enough? Like do I belong here in this role, you know, or am I just a token? You know what I mean? Am did I just am I just a check checkmark essentially? I think that's a huge thing even to this day for a lot of folks that have to deal with multiple marginalized identities. I think it's also a matter of burnout. You know, sometimes you get burnt out because you don't necessarily, it's hard to find your community when you are a minority within a minority within a minority. You know, when you have these multiple marginalized identities kind of like altogether. Sometimes it's, it's hard to find someone that you can connect with and relate to about these experiences, especially those folks that are coming from further away. So if they don't have like their family or their friends with them that, they, that they're used to, then it really is kind of fe- it could feel as if they are alone. And so I feel like there's more of a likelihood that folks will experience burnout for lack of a release, you know, getting that stuff out yeah. and talking with folks. So, yeah, those are some of the things I would think that they probably may talk about. Well, the, the burnout one
0: is, is, is it, as soon as you said it, it certainly <laughs> resonated. But again, it speaks to that wellness piece and mm-hmm. and even finding, you know, a mental health professional that kind of meets Multiple needs, right? And so, right now, for our listeners, I'm, I've been posting mental health resources for marginalized communities on the podcast Facebook page. So, be sure to go on over there to check that out. But it is, it's one of those things where you're like, okay, I need to talk to someone. Right. And so, then you go, well, you know, Am I at the place where like, it's so critical that I don't care who I talk to, so, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> the bar ends up being really low because my need is very high. Okay. So there's that. But once you kind of get past that in terms of kind of regular care, right? And regular mm-hmm. mental health care and self-care and all of those kinds of things. And you start thinking about, okay, well, what kind of mental health professional will be kind of, you know, my dream person? Right. Right. So once you sift past, is it a social worker? Is it a psychiatrist? Is a psychologist? Is it like practical therapist? Once you sift through all of that, then it's like, okay, so is it a person of color? Is gender important? Is background important? Is queerness important? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, location mm-hmm. <laughs> important? Access to medical insurance coverage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but just even just demographically, the list becomes really long. And maybe I need someone who is, I'm able to talk to through sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does talk space have someone have TDDY, right? Mm. <laughs> are captions available? You know, so so when you start thinking about what your actual desires are in terms of care, but also what some of your needs are to just get basic mental health care, that list can become pretty long pretty quickly when we're talking about multiple identities and kind of really kind of trying to help people identify what their needs are.
1: Absolutely.
0: Does it? And again, it may or may not be uh, one session. You may want to talk about gender identity, and the other section t- uh, session you might need to talk more about race. And then the third section, you're just like, I really am struggling, you know, holistically. And so, again, it's, it's it can be really challenging. Absolutely. So what kind of intersectional issues, what do you do at the uh, Resource Center and and uh, what are some of the intersectional issues that you're helping folks at UC Davis grapple with?
1: Sure. So basically right now, my main focus is to support our students, st- uh, student staff specifically that do programming for the community. And I also support some of the student groups that are on campus as well, sort of indirectly. And just with whatever programming that they need, just kind of go through it with them as far as like, who is your audience? What are you hoping to serve? Things such as that. What do you need from me as far as like funding? And, and that's kind of like the scope of the primary responsibilities. But then I also work with other departments to make sure that we're advocating for certain groups that are more marginalized on campus, uh, like queer and trans folks. Who sometimes get often overlooked and making sure that the campus is accessible in, in a sense for, for those folks. I would I would say that some of the issues that have come up have to do with, for example, one of the groups we have here, Blackout, it's for folks who are both black and also identify within the LGBTQIA community. And I found that they feel very much marginalized to an to an extent because the the population of black students here is very small and then on top of that the population of queer and trans black students is even smaller mm-hmm. uh so you're looking at a group that's probably about five people that meet on a continue yeah five mm-hmm. people that meet on a continuous basis and really just trying to support one another on a re- on an ongoing break basis through the things that are they're experiencing in class from professors also from things that they're experiencing within their own community whether it be the black community or the queer community you know so that's something that they grapple with on a regular basis and just having a space for them to sit come together and talk about it is probably one of the biggest things that's helped them like navigate this and get through their years here at UC Davis.
0: So, and that's out of like, what's the student population at Davis that you're typically working with? You're going to be working primarily with undergrads.
1: Yeah. Primarily with undergrads. I'm not sure specifically about the LGBTQIA population. We're actually just getting that data, just Mm -hmm. allowing us to add that in there, which is nice, but it, it's definitely for the LGBTQI population of folks that self-select. It's clearly, you know, smaller, more so than the, the, the when you consider the, the whole. Right?
0: Yeah, what's the whole. What's what's the general kind of? I
1: want to say the general is twenty-five thousand, okay, somewhere yeah, around there, something like that. So
0: yeah, five, So for our listeners, yeah, <laughs> five students, yeah. <laughs> out of, out of like. 25k that just kind of need a safe space to go talk. And I know that there's, you know, even now there's like all this kind of hullabaloo about, oh, safe space, how, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, grow up. But like, you know, if you're dealing with some real stuff and Um, there's only five of you,
1: (laughs) (laughs) essentially, yeah, there needs to be a meeting. Yeah. (laughs) There probably needs to be a meeting just to kind of prop each other up each week. Exactly, exactly. And that's something that we've actually gotten pushback on, like these closed spaces and why why is there a need for them. Generally speaking, it comes from folks with from more privileged backgrounds, right? And they don't understand the fact that oftentimes this is the only place they have to kind of de to let their hair down, essentially, mm-hmm. and talk about what they've been experiencing. And it's not to create spaces where no one can come and we don't, because we don't want you, it's because we need something different, you know? Right.
0: Well, and I think that it also is important for folks to understand that it's even in personally experiencing these things, it's difficult to unpack, right? Yeah. Because a lot of this is also microaggressive, yeah. which means that you're kind of walking away. I, I was in a, on a panel this summer and I was kind of trying to articulate what it's like, to experience, like really what it's like to experience that subtle kind of micro kind of stuff, right? And so, you know, and I told someone, I said, okay, so someone says something to you at noon while you're in a lunch line and you're kind of pondering it and you go about your day, you take a conference call at two and at 2.30 while you're, you know, playing solitaire on your conference call. (laughs) (laughs) this this incident at lunch is kind of nagging at the back of your brain and, and, and you set it aside again because it just doesn't quite feel right. And then, you know, four hours later, you're finally leaving the office and you're at, you know, in the drive-thru at McDonald's or, you know, you're going home to go see what's in the crock pot. And there's that thing again. It just doesn't really feel good. And then 17 hours later, <laughs> like you're, still like, this is not, and was it because of this? Is it because of that? And, and if it's something that's, you know, just a, a kind of micro, but loaded um, where, right. you know, it's a, it's a catch all kind of thing where it could be because I'm black. It could be because I'm a woman. It could be because I'm 40. It could be because, right. of this, it could be because I'm bad, you know, and you're just kind of sitting around chewing on it. And so it takes up a lot of cognitive energy that could be spent Absolutely. in other ways. Right. And so sometimes it just takes that long to kind of mull it and you need to just kind of bounce it off some other folks. Mm-hmm.
1: And be affirmed that maybe other folks are feeling it too. And that, no, you're not losing your mind. Like this, This your, val- your feelings are valid in what you're feeling, you know? Right. Validation is huge. Yeah, it is huge.
0: So what should professionals in any discipline consider in, in, in creating inclusive environments, recognizing that, that, you know, folks are just bringing a backpack of identities with them?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think a big piece of it has to begin with humbling yourself, you know, having a sense of cultural humility where you recognize that you're going to be uncomfortable sometimes, right? So everything, you might say something and you get called out on it and you have to be okay with that, right? So being humble enough to acknowledge when you've, when you've done something wrong and being humble enough to recognize that there are certain experiences that you're not aware of, that you don't understand, and that maybe in order to connect with some people, you need to learn 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 more about these experiences. And then also just consider that there may be more under the surface than act than what you were actually privy to. So I feel like that's a, a big part of it is beginning with yourself and considering where you are in your journey of being humble, so to speak. Yeah. That's great. Um, Yeah, And then also thinking about how these systems, once again, think about how these systems engage with the various identities. You know, thinking about that and having that be a practice in your everyday experience may take some time is also something that's going to be beneficial. But I think that oftentimes it takes going to trainings and looking at podcasts like this one, you know what I mean? for you to actually do this work and have it be ongoing is going to be critical. Don't think that you can just read something or, you know, watch something really quickly and it be done. No, this is, you're basically going to be unlearning years and years of basically oppressive practices that you've been, that have been instilled in, in all of us.
0: Yeah. And I, Double down on the all of us. And it, no one is kind of immune <laughs> from missing other folks' identities, right? Absolutely. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of same group oppression and, you know, there's a lot of same group oppression and, and, it, and it appears in, in, par, in large part because of intersectionality, right? So there's groups within groups, within groups, within groups and, um, because of these different identities. So where can folks find more uh, information? Where can they learn more information about intersectionality?
1: I mean, there's, the web is full of resources. I would say one text that I feel like was really helpful and need really kind of understanding intersectionality and goes into the history of it, right? So going back to like Anna Julia Cooper is, um, it's called Intersectionality, (laughs) pretty simple by um, Patricia Hill Collins. Um, And I feel like that gives, I mean, if you like to read uh, I like to read. <laughs> Sorry if you don't like to read; that makes it a little bit more challenging. But it does give that historical foundation and helps folks walk through an understanding of intersectionality and how it plays out in our in our society. That's a text I would re- recommend. You can also find the Kambahi River Collective statement online. You can just Google that, and that they talk about intersectionality in that, and that kind of helps you to kind of understand it from a different person's experience. I definitely would recommend that text as well.
0: Awesome! Um, yeah. Great. And when in doubt, hit the Google. Google. Definitely uh, search Kimberly. Crenshaw.
1: Actually, hold up. Uh, this is the text. Ah. So you can see it. This is the text by Patricia Hill Collins. All right. Yeah.
0: And so. be sure to Google Kimberly Crenshaw. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Genius. So. Yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you. This has been a really great conversation and I appreciate it. Awesome. So that will wrap another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. We will be back in your feed soon with another set of episodes. Be sure to like us on our Facebook page, AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion On Air. Um, And be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, Stitchers, or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to rate us so that other veterinary professionals can find us and anybody else who wants to listen hi. And with that, we will wrap this episode again. Monet, thank you. This has been fun.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. And so, uh, yes, UC Davis folks, be sure to get on over to the LGBTQIA Resource Center and say hi to Monet. She's a great resource to you out there. Thank you. And we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.